And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, I have one more job before my wife and I leave for a little more than one week vacation to Costa Rica. As a matter of fact, we're going to visit the wonderful lady who introduced my wife and myself. Uh, She and her husband have uh, moved to live uh, permanently in Costa Rica, or I should say year-round. What do we know about permanently anymore? But anyway, uh, my last... uh, my last work, if I call this work, uh, uh, is to do a podcast, uh, and I wanted to focus on this recent article uh, about the total stock market index, and the, the, the article is entitled, This Strategy Beats a Total Stock Market Fund and Gives You More Diversification. Uh, that was the title that the people at Market Watch uh, put on it, and I... When I read that, I thought, whoa, that's a long one because they normally keep the titles uh, shorter. But we have now had uh, over 84,000 opens, and that is basically, uh, I think it was published on October 26th, so it is now November 2nd as I uh, record this. So that is uh, that is a very large number of opens in a very short period of time. And it's the kind of article that I think will continue uh, uh, as uh, the, the the last one that was really popular like this, and not even close to this popular, was the uh, piece we did on uh, taking all that money you would have spent on a wedding and investing that and the implications uh, over a lifetime, uh, what that could mean uh, for retirement. Anyway, uh, I did want to respond uh, to some of the questions and comments that have come up regarding this article about the total the total stock market uh, index. There were really a, a, a couple of points I wanted to make. A lot of people have the total stock market index because it represents to them uh, one fund holding all of the different asset classes that that one uh, would have in a portfolio. And it does. It does have small cap. It has small cap value and small cap growth and small cap blend. It has a fair amount of value. It has mid cap. It has, uh, in this particular case, all U.S. And if you put it together with the total stock market fund from the international arena, then you'd have the same thing internationally. And the point I wanted to make, and I think it's 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 very important, is that that while it does have all the asset classes that I would would want in terms of an equity fund, it doesn't have enough of some of the asset classes to even make a difference. In particular, uh, the addition of the small cap has almost no impact on the return of the fund because the big companies uh, totally uh, drive, almost totally drive the return. And and when you when you look at uh, uh, the, the period of time that it's been, the total market index has been tracked by the academics. It turns out from 1928 uh, through 2018 that the S&P 500, big companies, all big companies, not all giant companies, but all big companies, 
The S&P 500 has compounded without expenses at 9.7% and the total market index at 9.5%. And the total market index did have a small cap. And if, if small cap is such a good thing to have, why didn't it have some impact on the portfolio? And and as a matter of fact, it didn't it didn't add anything. Uh, it turns out, and I'll and I'll take a guess at why this is so, uh, that adding those the mid cap and the small cap uh, tended to bring the return, the total return over the ninety one years down by two tenths of a percent, and that's actually a big deal, uh, particularly when people think they have something better uh, than the S and P five hundred. I think. I do think the reason that this return with the the, the addition of small cap, the reason it's lower is because they're probably, number one, using more growth-oriented small caps and likely bigger small caps that that, uh, are more marketable, more liquid, uh, which could be important uh, in a total market index to be able to uh, move in and out as the money flows uh, uh, with, without having to pay big spreads. In fact, it's oftentimes the smaller small cap and the more deeply discounted value uh, that produce that extra premium that makes small cap uh, historically special. Anyhow, that was the one thing that I wanted to point out was that that the total market index is not the home run that some people, I think, uh, have thought that it is. Uh, or I, maybe I should say it has not been historically. Now, maybe it will be in the future. Who knows? The other thing I wanted to point out was that with with the combination of these four asset classes, large cap blend, large cap value, small cap blend, and small cap value, that you went from a portfolio um, making 9.7 with the S&P 500 to 11.6 if you divided the portfolio up into quarters and uh, rebalanced once a year. Now, again, this does not include uh, expenses. It wouldn't include taxes. Uh, it did include the reinvestment of dividends, and that certainly uh, is an Im- important uh, part of of uh, these high returns that were paid over a long time. Uh, if you look just at the raw returns uh, without the dividends, uh, it would, in some cases, uh, take as much as 2% a year off the returns of uh, some of these asset classes. But anyway, there you go. By putting the four together, you had about the same risk, very similar risk, uh, and and uh, and you had a much better return, almost 2%. And as I've said only a million times, if I could find an extra half of 1% over a long period of time and, uh, and not take much more risk, I would certainly uh, consider that as a smart move to make. But let me... Let me share with you some of the comments that came back and and and, and also share um, my additional comments uh, uh, after having considered these 
things that in some cases are criticisms of the work and other cases just a misunderstanding at what point I was trying to make. One of the things that uh, several people mentioned is that they're really, this is only uh, a small part of uh, the other asset classes, a, a short list uh, that large cap blend and large cap value, small cap blend and small cap value uh, would not include REITs, would not break out a, a, a unique group for the, the high tech, uh, the QQQ uh, uh, index uh, would not include uh, the dividend growth issues. Well, uh, in fact, uh, the large cap value uh, has got a, a lot of dividend-based and reasonable growth uh, in the portfolio, and that would be true of the S&P 500 uh, as well. But the bottom line is that there was never an intent on my part to suggest that this was a total portfolio, and I think I should have made that more clear. The fact is, if you look at what we actually recommend uh, on our website for people who are building a broadly diversified portfolio is a combination of U.S. and international. And in the international arena, that would include uh, the small cap value as well as small cap blend and large cap value and large cap blend and a slice of emerging markets. It's what we call our ultimate buy and hold strategy. Oh, yes, and for tax-deferred accounts, there would be a slice of REITs. So uh, I, I absolutely agree with the idea that a portfolio could be or should be built with more than just these four asset classes. But I wanted to be able to see asset classes through as many possible market cycles as we could to see the good and the bad because when you go back to 1928, 27, you're going to take in the depression. You're going to take in war. You're going to take in uh, periods of very high, uh, uh, high um, inflation as well as deflation. And, and, and so that was the focus on these four major asset classes. And again, we used in the portfolios that we actually have recommended for people, not large cap growth, but a large cap blend. And what that does, when you put a large cap blend together with a large cap value, it overweights the portfolio to value, which is based on history, is a smart thing to do for people who have the patience. By the way, that is more important than a lot of people know because value can be out of favor for extended periods of time. One of the readers commented, a pretty timely article since small cap value stocks appear to be, and then in parens, finally, close parens, making a long-awaited move to outperform. Recent buzz on CNBC uh, and, and rather convincing analysis by the Bank of America suggests you may be catching this one early in its upswing. Well, uh, it may be a timely article by chance, 
because I've been recommending uh, on Market Watch the small cap value since we first started writing back in uh, uh, 2013. So this is really not a push to get people to add small cap value because I think uh, something exciting is uh, uh, is about to happen. It really is more of a long term uh, buy and hold with the belief, with the belief that there is in fact going to be a premium for owning small cap, a premium for owning value, and also a premium for owning stocks because over the last twenty years. Uh, uh, bonds have made almost the same return as the S&P 500. And, of course, the S&P 500, as we know, during that period of time lost 50% of its value twice, twice. So um, uh, so it, who knows what the future returns will be for these asset classes. But, the, uh, uh, but, but certainly the past speaks loud and clear. Another comment that one of the uh, readers made was, uh, I would look to the DFA equity balance strategy for how to allocate amongst the size and value asset classes globally. And then the writer goes on to say that uh, 20% should be in U.S. large cap, the S&P 500, uh, 20% in large cap value, 10% in microcap, 10% in U.S. small value, and, 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 and adds the rest of these major asset classes. Now, the reason I'm sharing this is because his uh, strategy, or as a matter of fact, uh, I think this is a strategy that comes right out of DFA, this strategy is different than uh, what we have been advocating for for many years, and the the bottom line is there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of ways that you could put these portfolios together. And the question is, if you have some big and small, and some value and growth, and some U.S. and international, and some REITs, and some emerging markets, which most of these kinds of portfolios do, uh, will you do okay? Yes, you probably will. We just don't know which strategy will be the best. Our strategy is is a dumb strategy, a dumb strategy in that it knows the small cap value has the biggest return of all these asset classes uh, in the DFA equity balance strategy or in uh, almost any typical asset allocation that's done by somebody who, who has studied all these different asset classes, uh, all sorts of different combinations. And the fact is we don't know which one is going to be best. But the fact that you spread it amongst in some way across all of them, that's, that's good. Uh, our position, again, when I call it a dumb strategy, was it made no attempt to put, didn't put more money in small cap value than large cap value. Didn't put more in a large cap uh, a blend than in small cap blend and then put, put the same. And so the idea is here are 10 great asset classes based on history. 
And why not just spread that money one-tenth each in those ten asset classes? Because we know that some are going to disappoint and others are probably going to be absolute heroes and it may not be the same as in the past. And in fact, what I see that DFA has done is overweight large over small. And um, so they have taken a position that uh, you're better to package the portfolio to be less risky rather than more risky. So um, this is why people, I think, oftentimes do, in fact, need uh, some sort of an advisor to help them work through this decision-making path. And I should add that this particular comment uh, is made by somebody who's obviously uh, understands the work that uh, Dimensional Funds is doing. But he says, uh, if you're not working with an advisor, iShares offers Russell and uh, MSCI ETFs in most categories. And then here's the important part of this. But they're not as, infish, not as efficient at targeting the small cap and value premiums as DFA is. And in fact, looking at long-term uh, uh, history of uh, the uh, iShares uh, and uh, the Russell MSCI ETFs uh, and those indexes, yes, the returns have been less than the way that DFA has built their portfolios. Now, this is important uh, because the work that we've done, and I'm the we is probably not, a, I should say, the work that Chris Pedersen has done for us and for the people who follow uh, our site uh, is to, to do the best he could to pick out ETFs that emulate the way that DFA builds their portfolios with a similar amount of small and a similar amount of deeply discounted value. The things that, that, that we believe are going to get that premium. So when you look at the recommendations on our site, if you go to under ETFs, you go to you can see best in class ETFs. You can see portfolios recommended for people who want a worldwide diversified portfolio of equity. By the way, we also have recommendations for people who are more conservative who want to put together this worldwide strategy along with some bonds, whether you're a moderate risk taker or a conservative risk taker. So we've tried to address the needs of a full, a full range of investor risk tolerance, but to do it to emulate the DFA asset class uh, funds that that I believe uh, have the best chance of, of getting the the better long-term return. That's that's why we're looking at the more deeply discounted value and uh, the more small cap. Another reader asks the question uh, about why no mid-cap growth blend or value funds. Well, you will get some mid-cap in these recommended funds. If you look at the style boxes at, uh, uh, at Morningstar, 
because almost none of these ETFs are pure, purely small cap and purely value. You'll you'll see that they own some in the mid cap range uh, as well. And maybe the value funds will have some over in the blend and even a few over in the, in the growth uh, part of the portfolio. Now, why no specific mid-cap? The, uh, historically, you get your best and worst action around the edges. So if you're building a portfolio that you're going to look to rebalancing to take advantage of the uh, the ups and the downs of these different asset classes, uh, going with more of a dumbbell approach where you have your holdings either basically large and small, and that tends to push uh, the returns uh, to one way or the other in a market. For example, when large growth is doing well, then you're going to have probably sometimes considerably less returns in the small uh, growth and value arenas. Now, what's good about that? Well, what's good about that is when that that direction changes and the small and the value are doing way better than the large and the growth, that rebalancing will lead, hopefully, uh, to a, a bigger impact coming up off the bottom when there's rebalancing is done and the, and the small and the value take off. It, it has a tendency to increase the potential for return due to the, the rebalancing process. But if you decided to use mid-cap in the portfolio, that would not be disastrous at all. In fact, I'm sure you would get a very fine return. It's, it's like the international. Why, why add the international? What does it really do over the long term? Well, it could add anywhere from a, a, a quarter to a half a percent maybe even better, in fact, much better during some short periods. But over the long run, it might add an extra quarter to half. On the other hand, adding the international could decrease the return long-term uh, in uh, by a quarter to a half. It's not likely to be radically different in the long term. Short term, it will be. That's the nature of these uh, markets that don't go up and down together. Here's a here's a somebody who who not not attracted to this article. He said, "This is an absurd article. It makes no financial sense." The article suggests that an investor underweight large cap stocks and overweight small cap stocks. This might be the proper thing to do, but not for the reason he mentions. Why should you think it's reasonable to invest $10,000 in Apple and $10,000 in a tiny high-tech company and think that is proper diversification? Logically, you have far too much in that tiny company. It might be a good investment, but it is a risky investment. And by the way, this would if, if if in fact that was what I was recommending, uh, that would be really risky. 
and probably would not be a good investment. Uh, The bottom line is what we're talking about is we're talking about a portfolio of asset class funds, uh, thousands of small cap value, thousands of small cap blend, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of large cap blend and 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 value, not individual stocks. Uh, that is not something that I recommend. And in fact, uh, let me just take a second. I want to share uh, an article that just came out that I, I find to be, in fact, we'll have a link to this article uh, uh, by, um, by Jonathan Clements. Uh, I'm a great fan of Jonathan Clements. And my list of either 10 top truth tellers or 20, I'm not sure which I'm going to end up with, but I got to get to 10 first. Uh, Jonathan Clements absolutely makes the grade. As somebody whose work I have confidence in, common sense, uh, I've, I've never, well, I've caught him disagreeing with me because we have sometimes a different set of beliefs, but I think what he teaches investors is absolutely worthwhile. And uh, if if you think my articles are are helpful uh i think you'll find that jonathan clements work is uh, uh equally if if not even more helpful in terms of the the overall view of investing he doesn't tell people how to put a portfolio together like we do but his education is excellent and in this particular issue november 2nd uh, again you can go to our write up uh, at paulmerriman.com on this podcast, and you'll have a link to this article if you want to reach it that way. It's entitled Cash Back. And in this article, is talking about the kind of the, the unfortunate prog- progression of uh, what happens when companies are successful, highly successful. He mentions Amazon as the world's fourth most valuable company in terms of market capitalization. Remember, that's the number of shares times the price per share. He says at that size, it isn't about to get bought by another company. It doesn't pay a dividend. And the last time it repurchased its own shares was seven years ago. Now imagine this continued, Jonathan says, no buyout, no dividend, no stock buys, until the sad day arrives when Amazon goes the way of buggy whip manufacturers. Result? There's a good chance its shareholders would, over the company's history, have collectively made no money. Sure, some investors would have bought low and sold high. But in aggregate, investors would have got pretty much zilch. Now, he is not saying in this article that that Amazon is on its way out. But he is saying that in an investment lifetime, in his case, he says, I've seen countless companies fall from grace. 
At their peak, corporations like IBM, Walmart, Microsoft, and GE seemed unstoppable. Yes, they're still huge companies, but they no longer inspire awe, and their brightest days are likely behind them. And I'm older than than Jonathan is, and I remember the days when people felt the same way about General Motors, then they felt the same way about Sears. Um, and, uh, and, and those were the very early days about IBM. And IBM had still not quite, had not quite got to the point where it was a stock you should own uh, and own forever. But, of course, it went on to, to be that. He says this is all too common. It isn't that companies necessarily grow complacent. Rather, new competitors emerge with cheaper, faster, better ways of doing business. This is um, Schumpter's creative destruction, Joseph Schumpter, the uh, economist. And uh, um, he he said, now he's going to make reference to Dr. Bessenbinder's work, uh, he says you got to look at the study of the 90 years of, of Bessembinder's study, and he says, and I don't think I, I, I mentioned this uh, when I did the podcast about Bessembinder's uh, work, but he said, one, the average period of being listed as a public company was seven and a half years from 1926 to 2017, and In fact, only 36 stocks were around for the full 90 years. Now, that's pretty remarkable. That doesn't mean they all went out of business, by the way. What it means is they got merged away or or merged with another company to become something new and different and trying to continue the growth of, uh, phase that made the companies as famous as they became became, and he also has a link, and I'm going we're going to give you a link to this same ranking, but it 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 shows a um, by by hitting the replay button at this site, American Business History Centers. Uh, uh, of the largest U.S. companies. They have rankings there, and you hit the button, and all of a sudden you see how um, how many changes happened in, in the top uh, most productive, most profitable, most valuable uh, companies in America. And in a short 24 years, General Motors and Ford were toppled from the top of the ranking while Apple, Berkshire Hathaway, and Amazon soared. And what we also know is that Berkshire Hathaway over the last 15 years has not had a very good return. And so the reason they're as high as they are on this list is because they went through a period of really high returns, but not so recently. And he makes the point that General Motors, which was delisted from the stock market in 2009 uh, after it went into bankruptcy. It it went from a price uh, a decade earlier of $93 a share down to 61 cents. And the fact that there's a 
GM is is trading, has been trading, is because it subsequently came out with a new initial public offering. So it has not been a great investment except for one thing. It's paid out more than $64 billion in dividends before the bankruptcy. Now, what people did with those dividends, they could have reinvested them. If that's what people did, then you know what their total return ended up being, pretty much nothing. On the other hand, if this was part of a diversified portfolio, and instead of owning General Motors, you owned 500 companies, then the return goes way, way, way up. I mean, you go from being broke to being wealthy if you kept plugging that money into the S&P 500. Remember, that portfolio, that S&P 500 compounded at over 17% a year for 25 years. And then, by the way, the next 18, 19 years, it compounded at about 5%. And even with that lousy 5% return for almost 20 years, it was still hugely more profitable than General Motors. And of course, it always feels, it always feels like when the good times are are happening, that this is something that's going to go on forever. We know better intellectually. But remember when it comes to to money and to sex and to food and to relationships. It it isn't about the intellect. It's about feelings. And those feelings about investments can lead us easily down the wrong path, which is why we want people to be massively diversified through index funds. But then the question becomes, what index funds? So in response to this fellow who thinks my work is absurd, uh, I want to make sure that you understand I am not recommending $10,000 in Apple and $10,000 in a tiny high-tech company. By the way, isn't it interesting that 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 tiny company, that high-tech company, uh, which would certainly be very, very high risk, and not likely give a very good return, because most of them do not in the end. And yet, if that 10,000 that's in a high-tech company, a tiny high-tech company, was instead in a small-cap value company, history shows that the probabilities of success are very, very high. And let me make sure that uh, I make clear one more time, I was not in that article recommending that uh, you should have 25% each in large and small cap pure growth, but instead only as a a blend, okay? Uh, That came up in a number of the questions uh, following the column. Uh, Paul, here's another one. Do you do the returns referenced in your column include dividend reinvestment? Assuming dividend reinvestment is not factored into the above performance numbers, if it was, 
How would that affect your results? Well, uh, they do include reinvestment of dividends. And uh, if, if we had not included the reinvestment of dividends, you probably would have taken, uh, particularly in the large cap blend and the large cap value, you would have taken off 2 plus percent uh, a year in returns because dividends are an important uh, part of, uh, of the returns of these asset classes. And you may have heard uh, in the past uh, how if you uh, invested in the stock market in 1929, if you got in at the peak, it took until 1954 to break even. That, that uh, 1954 date is based on the index without the reinvestment in dividends uh, if you include the reinvestment of dividends, it uh, broke even either in 1938 or 1943, depending on how you figure it. But the point is, those dividends uh, help people uh, get even um, uh, in a much shorter time than waiting till 1954. Of course, what what you need to see probably more importantly, and we'll have to do this in a study one of these days, is, okay, if you could, if you had the money and you just dollar cost averaged into and through the Depression, uh, how would you have done by 1954? Well, I think you would find you would have had a huge return, not just had broken even. That's always the risk of a lump sum, of a large amount of money uh, being exposed to uh, uh, to to uh, to the a bear market. That's that that's the biggest problem one can have. Which is why, when we have a lot of money, we start adding some fixed income in there to to protect ourselves against the catastrophic. Here's another uh, a kind of topic that came up and was discussed by several people, and that is the idea of equal weighting. And instead of investing in the S and P five hundred to invest in, in, a, in a fund or an ETF uh, that is equally weighted so that uh, each company in that S&P 500 uh, is represented by the same amount of share value so that you would not, the very large companies would not overshadow the returns of the smaller companies. And if we look at the short term, uh, it turns out that Recently, because growth and large have done better than 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 smaller and value, uh, that in fact the S and P five hundred has done better than the uh, than the individually weighted portfolio, where every company has this equal impact on the the growth or the decline of the portfolio. But one of the readers uh, took the information back. Uh, 15 years, and that from the period uh, June of 2003 through September of 2019, and it is it is interesting to see that the uh, compound rate of return of the Vanguard 500 Admiral uh, Index was 9.34 percent, uh, with a standard deviation of 13. Point four and a maximum drawdown of about 51%. Now, the equal weighted 
portfolio had a compound rate of 10.23. So it was about nine-tenths of 1% better with equal weighting over the entire period, but a standard deviation that was about 10% higher and a maximum drawdown that was about 10% higher. So you took more risk and you made a higher return over the longer term. Now, is that a smart thing to do? Well, certainly, once we know what happened in the past, we know it's a smart thing to do. There is no risk in the past. We always know what we should have done. But it's what should have happened. In theory, if if you asked an academic prior to that 15-year return, would a fund that is made up of, on average, smaller companies, on average, more deeply discounted value, would you expect that to have a higher rate of return? And the academic would say, certainly. And in fact, that's what happened. But I will guarantee you, as much as I can guarantee anything about the future, that there will be extended periods of time when the large and when the growth are having the creating the strongest performance. That is the point. The S&P 500, as most everybody knows it, is likely to do better. But that appears, at least based on history, to, 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 to be a lot less of the time. There is no 40-year period that large-cap growth or large-cap value outproduces small-cap value. And small cap value over very long periods of time has been number one. There was one short series of exchanges that kind of addresses this very thing. One person says small cap value funds have outperformed any other asset class in any 30 to 40 year period for 90 years. Number two comes in and says the problem is that any factor such as size or value, can underperform the market for an extended period of time. One has to be a strong hands investor to tolerate the tracking error. By the way, I do not consider that tracking error. I consider that a different asset class. Large blend is not the same as small value, just as stocks are not the same as bonds. And then number three chimes chimes in by saying, if your horizon is short-term to tap that money, it shouldn't be there, nor in any other equity fund. In other words, if you got need for, for, for money in the next year or two or three and some financial planners will say five, you should not have that money at risk in the equity market. I think the decision that we're left with, and in a way there is no bad decision in this regard, but the decision is, do we want to diversify our portfolio basically with large companies that are less likely as a group or individually to go out of business. 
as as Jonathan Clements was saying, he was not he was not suggesting that Google or or Amazon are about to go out of business. Uh, he is just saying that the amazing growth that they had is not likely uh, to continue. And he is saying that if if companies never pay a dividend and just keep pouring that money uh, back in uh, to supporting the growth, uh, which a lot of companies do, Warren Buffett doesn't pay out dividends. He takes the money and thinks he can reinvest it uh, more efficiently than you can. And so, so that's, that's not an unheard of strategy. But the bottom line is that large companies as a group do tend to go up and down together. Small companies as a group, again, small growth are different than small cap value, but they can go in a totally different direction than the large companies might. But they are individually each more risky. They don't, when you look at them as a group, if you, if you own thousands of them, they the the value of the indexes do in fact go down a little more but not a whole lot more than the large companies as a group in the worst of times and 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 so uh, if if you are going to participate in that more risky kind of an of of a, of an equity boy you are way better off doing that in terms of of hundreds or even thousands of companies rather than one. But it's not stupid to be all large cap blend. It just is probably going to be substantially more profitable if you extend yourself at least to mid cap, at least to mid cap. You know, Vanguard has the extended market index and the average size company is considerably smaller than the than than the S and P five hundred, but still, it's a lot of companies, and it is expected to make a better return. If you don't have the the sense of comfort and trust in what they call small cap value, which is typically a company of around two to three billion dollars in market value, as opposed to fifty to a hundred billion. With, with the giants, and more, by the way, and much more with a handful of them. So it's what you're comfortable with. It's how important it is to push the envelope, get the extra return. And uh, hopefully this information will give you, when you do decide to diversify part of your portfolio into smaller and value-oriented indexes, that you will have peace of mind and not worry about it. Because if you're worrying about it, it probably isn't isn't worth doing because there's plenty of money to be made in, in the larger companies. As a matter of fact, if somebody wants to be more aggressive, they are uncomfortable being more aggressive by putting money into small cap value, well, what they could do is instead is decide to put more money in those large companies by put by putting more into those equity holdings taking some of the money out of bonds putting it into the S&P 500 
and taking the additional risk that way. I personally think you'll be better off staying the course with the amount of money you have in bonds if that if that is what your risk tolerance is, but spreading the equity portion more broadly. Hope that helps. This is a uh, this is a hard decision, I think, for people to to trust something that particularly trusting making a change at a time like this when the market is so so high. I would encourage you though to at least consider what happened to small cap and value, both large and small, in 2000 through 2002, uh, after a period that the S&P 500 made much more, a lot more, than, uh, uh, than, the, S, than, the, than the value and the smaller. Um, but it may be that it's going to be less risky to expand your holdings to uh, more asset classes uh, rather than fewer. I hope it helps. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.